Hey everyone, I just want to thank you ahead of time for tuning in to the second book of the live ship traders here, Mad Ship. Emma and I were very excited to dive into it, so after we got our new equipment, I didn't quite have all the settings down as well as I would have liked, so I want to also apologize because you'll hear some sound artifacts, some crackles, some pops while we're speaking. That won't continue on to the next episodes that was fixed after this recording, but just a heads up. Thanks so much for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we are starting the brand new book, Mad Ship, book two of Ooh. Live Ship Traders. Exciting stuff. Yes. And of course, with all the live ship books, we start out with the serpents. Yes. Well, <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> womp womp. Come on. There's interesting stuff in this one. Is there? I mean, I guess we get to learn a little bit more about serpents and dragons and stuff, but... <laughs> You're so excited. <laughs> this one is called A Recollection of Wings. Do all of the chapters in this book have titles now? Didn't they last book? Did they? Oh, yeah, they did last book, too. Yeah. I'm just losing it. We've took a, <laughs> took a long break. That's what happens when you can't record for several weeks. <laughs> All right. Well, we're back with a new book, new laptop, ready to go. Yeah. Maybe it'll be crispier because we have a brand new laptop. <laughs> uh, no, that would depend on my editing skills, which I don't know I've improved that much. <laughs> I think they're great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, yes, we ended last book with the serpents being attacked, uh, Shriver specifically being attacked and gashed by the white serpent that was following Vivacia, with them kind of listless and not knowing where to go because Malkin was like, oh, we have to follow She Who Remembers. And then they got to Vivacia and they're like, this isn't who we thought it was. Screw this. <laughs> yeah. Malkin had made the decision last book to not follow this fake she who remembers anymore because it wasn't right. She wasn't what he she was supposed to be. Right. But they are still trailing after her a little bit. And Shriver's a little bit worried, as she always is in her point of points of view. She says uh, that she was eyeing their leader anxiously. The injuries Malkin had taken in his brief battle with the White Serpent were healing slowly. Which both of us, separately, we read this chapter separately, were like, wasn't Shriver the one who was injured? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so pretty sure that this is a mistake by Robin Hobb. Yeah, it talks, yeah, it goes on to talk about how it's gash and how it is cutting into some of his false eyes. But in the last book, we double-checked, and it does say Shriver got attacked and she had the gashes down her. So yep, not really sure what that's about, but <laughs> we'll just go with it. We all know now, different from what we last heard, but going forward, according to the book, it is now Malkin. And that is... A little bit concerning to Shriver because on top of being injured, he is also kind of just in a depression slump, really. Yeah. She notes that he seems 
as confused as Shriver and Caesarea are. And all three of them are just kind of like drifting along. And Malkin confides in Shriver at one point saying, I lose my place in time sometimes. It seems to me that we have come this way before, done these things before, perhaps even shared these words before. Sometimes I believe it so strongly that I think that today is actually a memory or a dream. I think then that perhaps we need do nothing, for whatever has happened to us will occur again, or has perhaps already occurred. I think this musing of Malkin's was very fool-like to me. It feels like when the fool gets really dejected about not knowing what path to take and how to get his end goal to come forward. And there's that just despondency of, I know what it is that I'm reaching for. I just don't know how to reach it. Yeah. And I think that that is a really well done feeling here. Just an overall sense of uneasiness, dread, and just unsurety. I don't know if unsurety is a word, but it is now. (laughs) (laughs) Anything's a word if everybody believes in it. (laughs) But they all of a sudden see a school of fish coming towards them and also some other serpents that are chasing that fish. They are all starving, so they dart after the school. They hear some warning bugles from the other serpents, but Trevor and all the others ignore it because they don't see any danger around. They don't see anything that could be dangerous to them. So they dart into the school, capture some fish, and then are attacked by the serpents. I do want to mention that the fish are mentioned being silver multiple times. I don't know if that really matters, but... I think it's just description in this particular That's thing. fair, but I did want to bring it up because yeah. I was wondering if maybe serpents only eat silverfish because of the <laughs> silver that they crave when they're adults, but maybe not. Just a fun little thought, I thought. I mean, they also gladly eat the dead humans thrown over from the slave ships. True. Absolutely true. But no, I just thought it was interesting that they're like, oh, silverfish multiple times. (laughs) Um, It also is really interesting because this is a school of fish and it mentions that if they were clumsy hunters, it would be really easy for the fish to evade them. But Mulkin's tangle is not clumsy. And I thought that was an interesting detail to put in there because... I think at this point, they're really run down. And even as we saw them last book near the end, they it's not that they seem incompetent. It's just them kind of following a madman around. So hearing that they actually are a pretty strong tangle, which is also clear by the fact that they still have so many memories, I think. But still, mm-hmm. knowing that they're actually pretty competent hunters when they don't have to go on this fool's errand. Right. I don't know. I thought that was cool. There's only three of them, and there's six of the others, though. Yes, and they're attacked. Shriver, of course, is going into this before the attack, thinking, oh yeah, maybe maybe we can even convince them to join our tangle once they realize that Malkin is a prophet. That's great. Let's let's just continue hunting and feed and (laughs) be sated for once. Yes. And then they are attacked and turned on. Caesarea is attacked by two of the Scarlet um serpents Mulkin is actually two scarlet serpents suddenly turned aside and struck Mulkin. ah yes sorry the and blue one came after shriver yeah and then the other scarlet so the, yes. the other there's three scarlet ones 
So all three of them are attacked separately. Malkin has two going after him. And Trever kind of flees. She's very confused at this. Also, the serpents are yelling profanities at them and like kind of telling them to back off, but in a way that doesn't make sense, she notes. Yeah, there was neither sense nor syntax to the curses, only fury. Obscenities and threats. Mm-hmm. So she flees, but Malkin did not follow. He shook his great mane, releasing a cloud of toxins that near stunned the scarlets. They backed away, shaking their open jaws and pumping their gills as they strove to flush his poisons away. And he sits there like, what is the matter with you? Why do you attack us like soulless beasts fighting over food? This is not the way of our kind. Even if there were few, fish belong only to the one who catches them, not to those who see them first. Have you forgotten who you are, what you are? Have your minds been stolen completely? And they just kind of hang there. The fish are fleeing, forgotten, and then they all turn on him. All six. And Caesarea breaks Shriver's horror (laughs) of staring at that, and they dive to try to help Malkin out. What's really interesting about this is... I always think of the serpents when we read from their point of view as somewhat humanoid or human-like, at least. And then hearing the like rules of their society being it's survival of the fittest out here and you have no right to claim something if you can't catch it first is not very human, I think. I mean, humans <laughs> do that. You can argue. But I feel like typically in human societies, we try to like... Like the other serpents are doing, I saw it first, it's mine, even if I can't catch them all. So it's really interesting that in losing the sense of serpent, the sense of self, that they are kind of degrading into more human-like in a way. I guess almost I don't don't know because I don't know that animals agree with that. Well, I don't know animals like they're like, oh, I saw it first. It's mine. I guess they fight over food resources. I don't know. Maybe that's just like nature. (laughs) Maybe nature just be like that. I don't know. The tangle itself is they do have empathy and Traver does later on try to get food and bring it to Malkin because he's grown weaker out of all of them. So they do exhibit those behaviors, but I think that's just kind of like a general governing societal rule between different tangles who don't know each other. Mm. Makes sense to me, at least just like, yeah, you can't claim something that you haven't that you don't possess. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of weird either way. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know how I feel about it, I suppose. (laughs) Malkin is being beset on on all sides and attacking uh, and being attacked with the teeth of the other six serpents, the wild serpents. And Shriver is remarking upon that, like, oh, yeah, they're just rubbing into him with their teeth like he's prey. Eventually, Caesarea does manage to wrap up Malkin's body and whisk it out of that group. And the serpents are all, they don't really notice. They're just kind of turn on each other, shouting challenges and obscenities still. And Malkin's tangle manages to limp out of there. Yeah, and interestingly... Caesarea also had to use her teeth trying to help get Malkin to safety, 
Yeah, Schrieber ended up biting people and so did Caesarea, I think. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting play into what happens next, which is Malkin lamenting that that group has forgotten, that that is what this group is destined to be if they cannot find she who remembers. Mm -hmm. And I think showing that in the way that they had to fight is just that little bit less of they didn't go straight for poison to try to get the other people away. They went for their teeth. And I think that shows them like also losing parts of themselves. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Malkin is lamenting the fact that they've lost everything. And all the while Shriver and Cesare are trying to push the flaps of his skin back on and put spread mud over it. So it heals Shriver is secreting some sort of mucus mucus that is a healing mucus, which is kind of weird, but I guess makes sense that they have the ability to heal in some way. Yeah, specifically saying he winced as she nudged a flap of torn skin into place. She sealed a layer of mucus over it. So I'm guessing it's just to keep it there. Mm. Just like hold it in place, maybe. I don't know. So can't really use stitches. True. <laughs> Gross. They rest down there a little bit because Malkin's in no shape to really move. Caesarea's already fallen asleep. Or perhaps he was merely silent and impassive, prey to the same discouragement that gnawed Shriver. She hoped not. She had barely enough courage left to shore up her own determination. Caesarea would have to rally himself. But Malkin concerned her the most. Their encounter with the silver provider, meaning Vivacia, had changed him. The other providers that moved within both the lack and the plenty were merely sources of easy feeding. The silver one had been different. And she remarks on that the scent of her was reminiscent to one who remembers and should have sparked more memory. She should have welcomed them in and gave them a purpose and led them, but nothing of the sort happened. And so Milken turned aside from her, proclaiming that she could not be one who remembers, and they would follow her no longer. Yet in the tides since then, her scent had always been present. She might be out of sight, but Shriver knew she was no more than a brief journey away. Malkin still followed her, and they still followed him. And then Malkin starts into a little doom. And he starts talking about how he fears that this is the last time that the serpents will be able to make this journey without all of them turning into animals. Caesarea doesn't really know what he means and demands he explain himself. But Malkin responds saying, you know this to be true, like search your own memories. He says, search not just the tides and the days, but the seasons and the years, back decades upon decades. We have been here before, Caesarea. All the tangles have swarmed and migrated to these waters, not just once, but scores of times. We have come here to seek those who remember, those few entrusted with the memories of all our kind. The promise was clear. We were to gather. Our history would be restored to us, and we would be led to a safe place for our transformation. There we would be reborn. Nevertheless, scores of times we have been disappointed. Time upon time we have swarmed and waited. Each time we eventually gave up our hopes, forgot our purpose, and finally returned to the warm southern waters. 
Each time those of us who have a handful of memories have said, perhaps we were mistaken, perhaps this was not the time, the season, and the year for the renewal. But it was. We were not wrong. Those who we were to meet failed. They did not come, not then, perhaps not this time either. So there is a lot of information we learn in that little tiny paragraph. I think the first thing is that they actually have done this. These specific serpents, not just in their past lives, but this life, have made this journey multiple times. Yeah, and all the other serpents too. And yeah, every other serpent, they have just forgotten. It has been so long that they've forgotten. And I think that that puts a really interesting spin on this. Yeah, the mul- next- decades and decades and multiple scores of time. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Malkin specifically refers to time as the way humans keep time, like decades, days, months, instead of just the tides and the days, because... I think that, again, shows how far they've slipped, like how much information they've lost to time, that now it's the lack, the plenty, and days and tides that they measure time by. But before, they had some sort of concept of the day, the year. Seasons. Seasons, all of that. I think that's really interesting to know. And then another thing that's really important that we learn is that there are multiple they who remember. It is. Yeah, that's what we we thought before as well. Yeah, but I just think it's interesting because before we were speculating that maybe it's just one she who remembers per, but it's those who remembers the few that have the memories. So perhaps there's not supposed to only be one leading each group. Maybe they're supposed to be multiple. That's what I think. Yeah, but I think but that's really interesting to know that and Mm -hmm. like for a fact. Yeah, definitely. Also. Begs the question, where are those who remember until this moment? Like, did they... dead? No, I mean, whenever times are normal, where are they? Do they have their own tangles or are they their own one tangle is all those who remember and they wait for the people this, to come? This is the thing that I was talking about before. When, when you bring up, like, the she who remember that's trapped or vivacia, it's like, oh, it's not for this generation because they'd be a dragon, Right. That's why I think that the one who remembers is a dragon and leads them. Mm. Because are is the one who remembers just kind of like chilling and like, oh, it's not yet, not yet. All right, now I'll swim north and meet everyone who like thinks it's time and tell them the truth. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know like where they would be chilling otherwise. Yeah, but I, I guess the only thing that I would argue is that then there wouldn't be a she who remembers in serpent form to lead them later if there isn't supposed to be a serpent form of they who remember then there wouldn't be a she who remembers yeah, at all i i don't know so i don't know i don't know either very very weird thing more questions than answers i feel we get one answer and it leads to more questions um i also want to talk about how Whenever they are supposed to gather, whenever they feel this urge to go the way that this group is currently going, it is a specific time, season, and year all together. They all have to be right for this to 
be the time to go? And I think that answers the question because I think we were all asking what prompted this time? Like, why did they decide to go? Was it related to vivacious awakening? What happened? But it seems like it's, it's just like a natural cycle. Yeah, there's a cycle. And I, that also prompts us to knowing that it's not a yearly event. It's not right. every spring. It's like cicadas, basically. Yeah. It's like every seven years or something. And some of them are 12 <laughs> years. Some of them are whatever. Yeah. But yeah, so there is this intrinsic knowledge that they have of the specific, like everything aligning to be now is the time we need to go. So yeah, scores upon scores of times that they've done this with however many years in between that, they could have been swimming around for hundreds of years waiting to turn into dragons again Yeah, and not being met. And it's gotten to the point where now they don't even remember those times. Right, yeah. Because I'm sure the first couple times they remembered trying. They remembered, oh, we already were here and tried to get here, but... It didn't work, so next time maybe. I don't know. Crazy. So they're resting until they can move again. Trevor doesn't want to move until Malkin is healed enough, but this area itself is not very conducive to resting because it's just littered with kelp beds and tumbled rocks, and there's no soft mud to settle into. And she's... Pondering to herself, we're all kind of fading, but I still want to choose to follow Mulkin because what else would I do? <laughs> right. You know, left to myself, where would she go? It was a question that was suddenly too heavy for her mind. She did not want to think. So she's looking at Mulkin here, the person that she's following, the serpent, I guess not person, and seeing how dull his colors are and like, you know, I'm shining brightly next to him and i know i'm not in the perfect healthy state so he needs to feed and shed a skin and he'll feel better and so she says out loud we need to feed all of us grow hungry and slack my toxin sacks are nearly empty perhaps we should go south where food is plentiful and the water is warm which also is another example in chapter of how far they're declining because they literally just talked about it two pages previously of how they did come north, and if they don't find them, they would go back south to the southern waters. And they've forgotten all those attempts. And Malkin was trying to say, like, this is the last time. Right. And not only that, but saying, you know, we can't go back. We have to keep yeah. looking. And she is already, well, maybe we go back south. And so, she, so Malkin speaks up and really drives it home, saying, you're spending too much of your strength upon me. But also, this is what we have to do. He says that we're weary unto death and hungry almost to mindlessness. The demands of the body overpower the functioning of the mind. But listen to me, both of you. Listen and fix this in your minds and cling to it. If all else is forgotten, cherish this. We cannot go south again. If we leave these waters, it will be to end. As long as we can think, we must remain here and seek for one who remembers. I know it in my stomach. If we are not renewed this time, we shall not be renewed. We and all our kind will perish and be ever after unknown in sea or sky or upon the land. He spoke the strange words slowly, and for an instant Shriver almost recalled what they meant. Not just the plenty and the lack, 
the earth, the sky, and the sea, the three parts of their sovereignty, once the three spheres of something. So this also mirrors the fool's urgency in getting the dragons back. The idea that if this doesn't happen this time, it's done. We will not come back from this. Dragons are over. Yeah. And it's really, really pressing. And it does bring to mind to Shriver, those forgotten words, at least, the earth, the sky, and the sea, tickle some memory maybe that she forgot. And again, this is things that they should have remembered over these years. And this, as Malkin is saying, is the last time. But those words kind of bring up some of maybe those forgotten memories. And as she's staring around, she looks at the bottom of the sea and sees some worked stone down there. Right. And this is Malkin after she kind of gives up that thought of it was the the three land, sea, sky were part of something. Malkin gives her and Caesarea or yeah yeah and Caesarea more toxin more yeah, he of shakes, the, shakes some of his mane and some of the toxins yeah to clear up their minds and give them more of that memory and when she looks down and sees the worked stone she recognizes it as the conqueror's arch the black stone veined with silver peeped through only in small patches the earth had shaken it down and the sea had swallowed it up once lives ago she had settled upon that arch, first flapping and then folding her massive wings back upon her shoulders. She had bugled to her mate of her joy in the morning's fresh rain, and a gleaming blue dragon had blared his reply. Once the elder kind had greeted her arrival with scattered flowers and shouts of welcome, once in this city under a bright blue sky. It faded. It made no sense. The images wisped away like dreams upon awakening. Be strong, Malkin exhorted them. If we aren't fated to survive, then at least let us fight it to the end. Let it be fate that extinguishes us, not our own lack of heart. For the sake of our kind, let us be true to what we were. And so she remembers this elderling city that she once landed in, and the elderlings who were there and greeted her. And looking down, she sees the worked silver stone, that was once part of that elderling city. Yeah, and that tells us, first of all, that, well, just to back up a little, we're currently in the Cursed Shores somewhere near the Pirate Isles, which means that somewhere around here used to be an elderling city. And I think that knowledge really stood out to me because in my mind there are like the big four, I guess, the big three or four, because there's Kelsingra, there's two that we know of that are discovered by the people in the forest in yeah, the like Treyhog and uh Kasserik. Yeah, so there's those three and then we have the one as Lovejal in the Out Islands. Yeah, and I guess five because we the know that the other cur- island the other island, thank you, yep. has a stone. And I guess no, never mind. That now there's six. Never mind. I'm crazy. I just only think about the main ones, the like as Lovejal and Kelsingra and forget that there are little towns around that at one point in this world 
elderlings weren't just in big cities. And I don't think were... Eslevjal is even a big city. I think that's a small yeah. place as well. It's just Kelsinger is massive. But yeah. Yeah, Eslevjal is just more preserved. The other ones, like this one, is probably massive, but it's at the bottom of the ocean and destroyed because of the cataclysm and the water rose and drowned everything. Right. Or maybe fell off sea cliffs. Maybe they're around yeah. land. We can't tell. But I, I just found it very interesting that there is Skillstone at the bottom of this ocean that reminds us that there are little towns everywhere in this world. Um, most of them probably never to be discovered again. And I wonder if them stopping here by that skilled and worked skill stone also kind of sparked some of those memories or helped right. that along. Either way, Malkin is trying to rally the troops one last time, basically. <laughs> and he's letting them know that this is it. If we don't do it this time, let's at least go out trying. And he looks so much like his old self that... Shriver's love for him surges in her multiple hearts because it's hearts plural. So apparently yeah. <laughs> there are multiple hearts in a serpent. And then just as this like sad, somber moment happens, a provider goes atop them and throws overboard some offerings of food. Yeah. She says that we're not destined to die. Look, we have some food to, um, Two of them, two dead, two legs, one with the chain still upon it. There'd be no struggle. So they do have some sustenance here. They can recover from their wounds and then continue on and hopefully not perish with all of their kind, as Malkin was saying. Right. Very, uh, very depressing sections and chapters. Yeah. Depressing way to start a series. Yeah, definitely. But um, with that... This is when Caesarea takes Malkin up to help him get food too. Make sure that they all get something to eat and hope that that is enough to keep them moving forward, I guess. We always start with the serpents. Always seem to end with the serpents. Yeah. Well, good to be back with the, the slimy tangles. <laughs> no, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't know. Someday, maybe. Well, we started the book. I'm excited for it. Yeah. I'm excited for the rest of it. We'll dive in more next week because chapters are going to be coming regularly again instead of uh, missing out in the last few. <laughs> yeah. I also feel like there's a lot more excitement. This book, there's a lot more. The first book is a lot of setup. Yeah. And that gets boring. So <laughs> I'm like really excited to get into just action and things happening and no more setting up. I guess some stuff still has to be set up for later problems and oh, solutions, yeah. but we get, I think we get the introduction of Cirilla in this book and maybe the satrap as well. Maybe that's in, only in the third book, but I think it's in this one and there's yeah. still more introductions to be, to be had, but yeah. either way, we're very excited to yeah. be on this book thank you so much for tuning in if you have any questions for us any thoughts about this book going into it or any feedback for the podcast please let us know you can reach us easily at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us or dm us direct message us on any of our instant um on any of our social medias including instagram <laughs> 
Facebook and Twitter. We're also posting our episodes on YouTube, so feel free to go over there and subscribe and like to those videos if you are listening on that platform as well. Thanks so much. Can't wait to see you guys next week. All right. After that short episode is done, we're going to move into some things that we have received via correspondence with the fans. I yeah. don't know where I was going with that, but... I think you are about to say email, but there's a lot more than yeah, just email yeah. here. <laughs> that was the hesitation. So. so anyway, we're going to talk a little bit now about your guys' point of views and some things you guys have written in. And because it's been so long since our last episode, thanks to laptop difficulties. Yes. <laughs> Um, there's kind of a lot to go through, but that's okay. Cause we had a short episode this time. So I guess we're going to start off with, we're going to kind of go topic by topic instead of our normal message by message. Yeah. Sort of like person by person, just because it makes more sense that way this time. And we're going to start talking about the Malta and Vivacia. Yeah. Okay. I can intro this one a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Because I started it in episode 150, I think. Yes. And I said that Malta and Vivacia would bond and possibly get along. Yes. And you were vehemently opposed to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So we had people write in about that. Quite a few people write in about that and have opinions, which is awesome. And I also wrote a topic on the Robin Hobbs subreddit as well. And I got a couple responses in there too. So we're going to kind of talk about all of those opinions. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to say, I think my initial absolutely not was because I don't like Malta and I like Vivacia and I don't want to subject <laughs> Vivacia to that. And let's set some ground rules for our discussion here, because this could go off the rails on a lot of different (laughs) tangents here. So there's two questions we have to consider. One, will they bond? Two, will they get along? And I don't it's it's going to it would be really fun to. But I don't think we want to try and spin potential narratives or fan fictions about what could happen in the plot afterwards, because I think that could just spiral so far. Right. It's fun to throw little hints out there, but I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that. Okay. Yeah. In this setting, we will yes. not spend time on that. <laughs> Be fun for another hour just to. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we'll start with some comments we got on Facebook mm-hmm. about the matter. First, we have Ellen, who thinks that Luke is correct, that Malta and Vivacia could connect. Uh, Malta and Althea are pretty similar, something that we have said um, and we have pointed out that they do have similar characteristics um, and that the biggest difference is the environment that they grew up in. So in Ellen's opinion, if there would be any kind of reality where Malta would need to be a vivacious family member, they think they could connect. Yeah. In a different way than what Wintrow and uh, Wintrow does, but... Malta would definitely connect, but also influence. different than Wintro influence Vivacia. Yes. In, in her ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which 
one point Luke. <laughs> We're not keeping score, not but one keeping... point Luke. Luke. <laughs> Emma's definitely keeping score because she knows the total already. We've Listen. read through these. <laughs> Listen, nobody ever backs me up. It's always Luke's ideas. <laughs> I'm going to ride this to the ground. <laughs> but yes, we have Ellen supporting the idea that because Malta has some similar similarities to Althea, that potentially they could connect on yeah. some level. Yeah, for sure. Not just because of their blood bond. Cookie Baker does reply to that just as a, a quick aside that Vivacia would be influenced very differently than when Cho influences Vivacia. Right. Um, if Malta was there because she's a little bit more selfish and whiny <laughs> and yeah. less introspective than Wintro is. So thank you, Ellen, for that. Yes. We also got a couple emails about this. Uh, Jonas emailed in to say that he does not agree with Luke. Jonas does point out that there are similarities between even Malta and Vivacia, but that they may not be a good duo because Malta's kind of too self-absorbed to want to reach out. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I will say in our two categories of one, will they bond and one, will they get along? He says no to like the get along and work well together. Mm -hmm. But Jonas does say that he believes that the bloodline gives an automatic connection to the live ship, but also that it isn't enough to have a real bond all the time. And that bond, that initial connection can be overcome. Yeah. And I think that's valid. I think obviously there is some level of magic happening with this bond, but I think if Vivacia were to turn away the bond, that potentially it wouldn't grow at all and could be shattered. I think that's the hard part about this is in the book as it is now, we only see the effects of the bond when Vivacia is desperately trying to reach for Wintro the entire first right. year that they know each other. So that bond grows, but there's also one side of the party desperately reaching out, trying to get that kinship. And I don't know if that would happen with Malta based off the different personality with Malta Windra Wintro. And there's no way to know that. And again, we're not doing tantra uh, tangents, <laughs> but it is really interesting to think about how potentially Vivacia could not want to reach out to the family member. And so that bond would not have, more growth. I do think, and, and Jonas uh, says in here that it's going to be more so on Malta's side if it doesn't work out between them or if it didn't work out between them. Right. And mainly because Jonas remarks that M Jonas thinks that Malta would see Vivacia as competition for attention. Yeah. Which I can definitely see. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm ironclad on like <laughs> 100% they would. It's a fun, fun hypothetical out here. But yeah, I definitely see that Malta, especially in the beginning of Ship of Magic, way too full of herself and self-absorbed. So, yeah. So Jonas thinks that there could be a bond, but might not be enough to actually uh, like become <laughs> link deep. them together. Yes. We also have an email from Jessica saying that they also can't see Malta bonding with Vivacia and that it's because they think that they would both view each other with contempt and that's the basis of why they wouldn't be able to form a bond. Uh, certainly not when Vivacia was newly awakened and in need of support, patience, and kindness. 
And Jessica is a little bit more on the side of while they think that blood relation is important, it is not necessary. So I think Jessica is leaning more towards even they won't even form like an initial connection, really. Yeah. Or they would have maybe, you know, the connection there or an affinity, you know, feel each other, but not even try to form that full bond. Yeah, which I think is interesting. And I think this is kind of in line with what Kenneth is trying to do. The idea that you don't have to be family to make this connection. It it like it it helps, obviously. Right. But anyone can make a, a connection, which is proved by Paragon. Mm hmm. Definitely. Jessica also goes into a little bit more of why Wintrow was probably more so pushed towards it by Veronica, yeah. seeing as he reached out with kindness initially. And even though he wanted to go back to his ministry, Veronica's like, no, no, you're a better temperament. Yeah. And I think this was actually a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about. And that is the involvement of Ronica and her role in this mm -hmm. because she also supported Wintrow going against his will on the ship. Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember that and also point out that potentially that is driven by grief because as Jessica mentions, but also as we know as readers, Wintrow looks and kind of acts like Althea, but, no, but what's also Oh, Captain Efren. Yes. He reminds bit, both yeah. Althea and Ronica of Efren in a yeah. lot of ways. And so I think that it could stem from that grief of just losing Efren. Everything's turning upside down. Kyle isn't who she thought she uh, he was. And now this mini Efren comes along and that'll fix the problem. Mm. Just shove him on. Interesting. Because I I've always thought of it as she was backed into a corner of things to do because one, she insisted that Kyle would be the captain, right? Kyle was the one to lead the family out, not Althea. Althea was a little bit too young. She was always kind of a little bit jealous of Althea's life and wanted to bring her back home. So, yep, Kyle's going to be the captain. Okay, where does that leave you with Althea as a mate? No, Kyle says he can't sail with her. There's friction there. Obviously, Ronica wants to bring Althea back home. Okay, who then can make a connection with Vivacia? And she's left with the three grandkids, Selden's too young. Malta is a woman and we're left with Wintrow. Right. So I personally thought that she was kind of backed into a corner of the like, well, Wintrow's the obvious choice. I think it could also be partly that, but I think the judgment of that could be coming from a clouded space yeah, of possibly, especially, I think, especially with death, grief over a loved one that has died is really hard. And I think needing to make big family altering decisions in a time crunch right after the death of a loved one right. while your family is falling apart mm -hmm. leaves for some clouded judgment leaves room for that. And I think especially this, like gr her grasping onto the idea that it's better to send someone unwilling on this ship than it is to figure something else out even if it is partly because she's back into a corner, there's nothing else she can do. Just that like thinking of, well, it's good that he's on there because he's kind. Mm -hmm. He's just like Efren. It'll be great without really. Out. Probably the best temperament for a newly awakened ship as opposed to grief stricken Althea who Kyle doesn't want to sail with and she doesn't want to sail with Kyle or Malta 
who she doesn't really know that much. Yeah, at this point. <laughs> And at that point in time, she didn't know yeah. and wouldn't have, she doesn't want Althea on the ship. She's not going to let Malta go. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. But very interesting thoughts to bring into the discussion of, by the way, yeah. it wasn't just Kyle's fault that Winter was yeah. here. Yeah, it is running us too. Thanks for weighing in on that issue, Jess. And we also have an email from Joshua or uh, Lord Denfire on Instagram. And he's saying that, uh, Vivacia and Malta don't have any similarities, really, in, in his opinion. They're just way too different. And that Malta on the ship would never work. She would complain about how filthy it is and how all the men are gross. She wouldn't do any actual work. She would be jealous of Vivacia and everything would be a competition to gain her father's approval. The wedge would be even bigger than with Wintrow because at least at, at Wintrow's core, he does care about other people. I know he does a lot of selfish things. But Malta, however, only has sights for herself. Which I disagree with uh, the no similarities thing. Because I, I think they do have similarities between Vivacia and Malta. However, assessment of early Malta on, in Ship of Magic is, is on point, really. She is very selfish. Yeah. She would be vying for Kyle's attention. And that's one of the things that I have had in the back of my mind of like the interaction between the two would be so weird on a ship because I don't think either of them would be expected the other to like do work. Right. Yeah. Like none of them are expecting Malta to do work. She would just be there to have a bond with the ship. And then I don't know. I see the, the whole like vying for attention doesn't really come into play for me. And that's because oh. I don't think that I don't think that Vivacia cares that much about Kyle or would want to care that much about Kyle if she had a connection with Malta or was trying to reach out and, and build a connection with Malta. So may, maybe with Malta being as immature as she is, she would still see competition there in Vivacia. But I think they, that dynamic could work. I don't think the argument was that on Vivacia's end, there's competition. I think it was always just that Malta would view it as competition. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I just, I don't think that Vivacia would put forth any effort with Kyle. So I don't see how Malta would view that as competition. But Malta also views her own mother as competition with her dad. So like, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that there's like. It's just a neglected child who wants attention and any attention that's not on her is somebody trying to take the attention mm -hmm. from her. Yeah. Not because attention should always be on her, I think is her personality. And yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's very, a little bit more similar. Josh is a little bit more similar to Jess's take, but more hardline even where doesn't think any bond would really form and it wouldn't work at all. The dynamic at all would work on a ship. Which is also probably my biggest thing. I think for sure they would bond. I don't know if the, they would be productive or yeah. <laughs> would work on a ship at all. We also have an email about this topic from Vika. And Vika says that they agree that Luke is right that Malta and Vivacia are similar. But on the whole, and also agree that they would probably bond, but on the whole thinks that any of the Haven Vestrit children would be able to bond yeah. with Vivacia. That 
and also thinks that they're too similar and would clash <laughs> too much because of that. Yeah. So a lot of uh, a lot of mentions of self-involves Malta yeah. being a, a friction point between the two and also brings up that being bonded to Wintro Vivacia becomes more um, introspective like Wintro himself. But being bonded to Malta would probably bring out that self-involved side a bit more and would create even more friction and sparks flying between the two. So it just wouldn't go anywhere. Right. And I don't even, not even just the self-involved thing. I personally feel like it would also bring up her need to get back at people, the like vindictiveness that like sometimes shimmers through in Vivacia. I think that flame would have been stoked with Malta because Malta is that way. Yeah. So 100%. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I, it's really hard. I, somebody, I think it's Jonas mentions that again, we said we're not going to speculate, but I do think it's worth saying Malta at the end of the book uh, in my mind has a bigger chance of connecting in a way that's productive than who Malta is at the beginning of the book when she would have had to have in this scenario connected with Vivacia. Yeah. And I think that version of the older version of Malta absolutely could connect with Vivacia, but young Malta, I just, I guess they're entrusting a child either way to try and help another child grow up. So who knows, <laughs> but like, like, I don't, they obviously the Vestrits have no qualms about leaving a child on their own to handle that. But I think it just, she's too young and mm-hmm. I don't know. That's definitely fair. But maybe being on the ship would give her, some perspective she needs <laughs> to be less, I don't know if she'd be less self-absorbed, but you know, it could give perspective. Yeah, for sure. So I, as I mentioned, I did post about this on Reddit as well. And we got a couple comments. I do want to say, and listen, cause I've said they're similar in, in ways, but I do want to kind of overview my post about it. Um, and then some of the replies to that as well. So as I've said before, my my line is, I think they do get along and bond. It is, the get along part is very iffy. I do get like how abrasive Malta is. I read all of her chapters. I understand. <laughs> uh, but I do think they're extremely similar and could find a place to be friends with each other. I wrote, uh, they're both finding themselves, trying to find their place in the world. And they're also have very similar demeanors. They're very intelligent. They're very driven towards uh, their goals and resourceful and also petty and vindictive. So, yes, those traits can definitely have a clash of wills kind of relationship. But I think they could have also fit together. And one of my main points in this of how they could have bonded or grown up together is that Malta does eventually bond with Tintaglia. Tintaglia sees in her a fellow, you know, queen dragon, right? Cause she gets the crest and everything. So I think with Bolt as uh vivacious dragon side, I think they could have connected there in some way. And, and Vivacia could see that those qualities or Bolt could see those qualities in Malta. So maybe not productive, but I do think that they would bond and get along on the ship. We've had a few emails now, like maybe one or two agreeing with me. The rest are like, nah, no way. (laughs) And uh, Reddit here 
has a couple other things. They go a little bit more into guessing what would happen plot wise. Right. But also there's a, a few comments saying that they do have similar personalities that they could bring those traits out in each other. And that might not be a good thing, but most people seem to agree that they could bond, but again, plot wise, it would not work out. Yeah. But it's still a fun thought exercise and it was very fun to have everybody yeah. message in about it. Definitely. Definitely. One person on Reddit, possible mate user, possible mate says that they can see them getting along but early Malta is pretty spoiled and whiny, so could see her being a complete brat, especially if she was expected to work half as much as Wintrow. I don't think she'd be expected to work at all, personally. And says, I could see her interest in men also getting her into trouble on the ship. Which is very interesting, especially if the same, you know, again, this is into speculation, but the same plot events happened with Kennet. How would that work out? Because another person in here too, uh, Luffy Senpi, um, has kind of the same questions. If Kenneth meets them, what happens? Do they Malta, form a same bond? Malta would not have survived the uprising. Let me just get that out of the way. <laughs> she would have True. been killed because she wouldn't have been helping the serve. If True. the slaves could have gotten themselves out without Wintro's intervening. That's actually they, another thing that um, Possible Mate brings up yeah. is how would she react to the slaves being brought on? Because in Bingtown... You know, Rach is just a slave. That's what slaves do. But if you're forced to confront the horrors and the reality. I would hope it would make her a better person. But I think ultimately she'd be like, they're stinky and gross and I don't want them on the ship anymore. Like, I don't think she'd be for it, but I don't think she would be like, oh, these are human beings that don't deserve to be treated this way. And I don't think she'd be going below decks to help them. I I agree with that, which is what makes your case of like during the uprising. She would have died. She would be dead really early on. Nobody would have survived that. Kenneth would have taken the ship. That is what would have happened. <laughs> but if the uprising could have and, happened. Yeah, if, if Malta is in Wintrow's place and Kenneth is on there, I don't think the charm makes the same effort towards Wintrow even, really. The only reason that was able to happen is because Wintrow rushed forward tried to try and like get him off balance. Yeah. So... I don't think they would have been in a situation where he would be mad at her in that way that would need to be cooled down by the charm. I think he would see her as a child that is a plaything that's annoying, but would like know how to manipulate her. Yeah, that's fair. And then they would have uh, the jealousy with Vivacia and Malta over Kenneth. Mm-hmm. He would probably charm her. Although be the I rakish, well-dressed I... pirate. It's it's hard, though, because Malta has such little disregard for people she sees as under her in a social standing. And I can't imagine, especially with the like on board the ship, it'll get her into trouble. I don't think she sees sailor men as people and I don't think she sees pirates (laughs) as people. So I don't think she's like even if they're cute and nice to look at, I don't think in her mind they're like potential conquests because they're not a trader family. She's good stock boy. She thinks that about Brashen, though. Well, she thinks he's cute, but she's not like, I'm going to pursue that. She tries to. I don't remember that. That's, to be fair. It's coming up. It's not yet. Okay. So I, I don't know. I think it's in her to. But he's to also. Over them. He is part of a live ship family, uh, an yeah. old trader family, to be fair. And everyone calls Kenneth the Pirate King. Mm, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Touche. But I don't think she'd Anyways, go after we're, any sailors. We are, we're straying very far from her. Just what we were exactly saying we weren't yes. going to do. <laughs> 
Of course. That's why I tried to set <laughs> try to set ground rules. Oh, it doesn't always then, work. Yeah. Then I'm the one who strays yeah. it off. But yeah, For so it, it's it's a very interesting conversation and topic. Um, I think with a few outliers, the consensus is that there is some sort of bond with family, with blood, yeah. that initial connection. But even with Wintro and Vivacia, they had to physically, not physically, but reach out to each other and truly form a connection. And a lot of people don't think that's going to happen with Malta. Right. Yeah. So thank you, everyone, for your thoughts. It's Yeah, we'll lay that topic to rest. Yes. It's fun to talk on, but... We're done with that now. <laughs> the other thing that we are going to talk about today is how Kenneth does not touch Vivacious Hand in chapter 150? One, Either 149 or 150. Maybe 150. I don't remember. I don't know either. It's been weeks now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, the, the scene where he's trying to woo... It would be 150 because it's the second to last. Okay. Anyway. Kenneth is trying to woo Vivacia, and when she reaches out to, take his to touch his hand, he does not touch her hand. And I speculated that it was because... He didn't want her to feel the underlying current of his emotions because he knows that that's the strongest area of a live ship and would make some sort of bond. Mm -hmm. And Luke, I don't remember what you thought about it. I don't think you necessarily agreed with me, but I don't think you had. I don't think I disagreed either, really. I just, it was just like, oh, that's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I, th I think um, Jonas emailed in and commented about this. And I think he kind of echoes what was in my brain a little bit yeah. of, uh, Kenneth kind of playing hard to get a little bit. Yeah. And he, and Jonas says, leave her wanting more. He has professed enough to her already. He knows that she'll only be crazy about him more. If he holds back this hand, he is playing a game on his terms. I think that's what I was going into. And then you went the magic route, which is awesome. And Jonas does agree here, but I think, Jonas brings up the the very manipulative side of Kenneth, not just in the magic, but the social aspect as yeah. well. And we also got an email from Vika that agrees with Jonas Yeah, that it's an interesting idea that it's about the magic, but it's probably more just manipulation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she wanted to get a touch by him, and by not letting her, she'd probably want it even more next time she sees Kenneth and would be more eager to please him or something like that. Thinking back, it's an excellent scene, especially from Wintrow's point of view. Yeah. Because we know so much about Kenneth on this reread, especially, and can look into his character. You can observe him from another person's point of view who doesn't know him, and the reader can pick up on what he's doing. Yeah. While Wintrow doesn't know what's happening, really. He definitely suspects something. Yes. But I do like the idea that it is a little bit less... I guess it's not less nefarious. Yeah. Yeah. But just there is that aspect of just human manipulation of mm -hmm. just this is how to manipulate people, which is kind of crazy, but does fit Kenneth. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I think that was a, it's a good thing to bring up and discuss. Yeah. That's a good point of view. And I'm still going to believe that partially it's because of the magic, but I do also like that he's just a master manipulator and he knew that would work and it does. So I guess good on him. <laughs> I don't really want to praise him for that, but like, <laughs> good job. <laughs> we also have a correction to make about 
potentially about serpents and vivacia being the only she who remembers ship on episode 151 on facebook there's a comment by bastion that says actually in rings a, a chapter on this book mad ship called titled rings gold about the live ship rings gold he is pulled down by the serpents and they tell him he's a dragon and he tells them what happened with the cocoons and they specifically say in that chapter that he smells like she who remembers so it's possible that all of the live ships that are awakened or maybe not even i guess vivacious was last all wizard wood all wizard wood smells like she who's who remembers because they're so laden with memory yeah and cookie baker comments or replies to that comment saying they think it's probably because Wizardwood is basically the vessel to soak up all the memories. That is the secretions from the dragons that helped the serpents cocoon. That's what the serpent or the dragons eat after they're hatched. That stores all of the, those memories. So yeah, but I think that's a really good, uh, interesting point. I mm-hmm. definitely forgot about Ring's Gold. Yeah, me I had too. No memory of him. Um, but yeah, so now we know that it is not only vivacia who is she who remembers yeah so it's just all life it just so happens that vivacia was in the right place at the right time right exactly <laughs> there's a couple more comments on this episode as well one of them is just agreeing that uh Kenneth definitely lives in their head as captain hook and sore course me which i yeah. thought was funny but also that there's a, a theory here from cookie baker Talking about how the how Tintaglia came to wake up a little bit more. Because we were talking about how the stone dragons flying over things maybe awaken the serpents to to migrate north. Just that theory. Which we kind of discounted ourselves, maybe. That's probably not what happened. Yeah. It's a cool theory. But this did spark another theory in Cookie Baker, who commented on this uh, chapter post. And Cookie Baker says that in Tawny Man Trilogy, Tintaglia seems to think Fitz is important to her, and they have shared some dreams of flying. So they do seem to have some sort of skill link. So maybe Tintaglia in the cocoon was drifting into death from sleeping in the cocoon too long, and when Fitz was waking all of the stone dragons with the wit and skill, they all started to wake up, and Tintaglia also heard the messages between them. And all of those dragons waking from slumber, flying off, could have taken her out of trying to bury herself in her ancestral memories and made her motivated to try to live. Which is very, very, very interesting to me. And it could be from that. I don't know how they would have been connected back then, but the immense amount of skill being used could have disturbed her in some way or reached that part of the world. I mean, they're not that far away from Kelsingra. True, they're not. Although I think Kelsingra is kind of far from the place where the dragons were being carved, where Verity carved his dragon. I mean, not, not like super ter- far. Not terribly far. But like, but there's like a mountain in between them, right? Something like that. But does the skill care about landscape? True. Does it matter how far away? So I think that was a really cool theory as well. Yeah, I do definitely like that theory a lot. I also was wondering if maybe it happens during this book when we're not with Fitz um, because we know next Fitz series that Fitz 
in this time period is traveling around the world that we know of. And he yeah. does come this way. Yeah, and so he, there's a potential that he just unwittingly <laughs> gave, shared something with Vivacia through his sleep without he, he closing does, his mind well. He does walk all, along the cursed shore yeah. at one point. So potentially that. But if not, I do like the idea that it's because mm-hmm. of the waking of the dragons before, which does mean that he was important to this and why the fool it was he's a big catalyst for the fool i think yeah i think that's a that i like that idea for that reason (laughs) we also have some talk from antonio on instagram about greg and althea and antonio thinks that greg and althea would be a better match than althea and brashen the caveat, I guess not caveat, the the only downside to the relationship between these two is that Althea can't captain Ophelia, but potentially if Althea were to get Vivacia back in the scenario where she's with Greg, then they could both be captains, although... Yeah, maybe and, on separate ships. <laughs> yeah, although Antonia does say that that makes it a little bit harder for them to ever meet when they're not on the ships, but it is a cool idea to think of one trader family having two live ships because of marriage. And they pose the question, are there any families who this has happened to? But I would say no. I would say 100% no. Because in their, but that's not fair because early, like during Althea's grandmother's time, women could be on ships. So, But I was going to say, now, no. But also, I don't think that would ever happen because they talk often about their society being built on contracts and especially like marriages. I'm sure they have those terms written in of like, nope, this family retains possession of this. You are, even if the, like a man married into a woman's family who is a captain on the live ship, I'm sure the man had to relinquish his right to the family live ship or something like that, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like there's... There's just too much debt. There's too much personal family interest in these live ships that they would never let them be transferred over. Yeah. And I would say it'd be more likely if there were, if they allowed men to marry each other, because it kind of seems like it's a society where the man gets the ship. So like the son gets a ship over a daughter. And if they weren't a society that looked down on that, which we know they do based off the next Rainwild Chronicles. Right. Um, then it'd be more likely. But because we know for a fact that gay marriages are not allowed in Bingtown, probably not. <laughs> I just don't see that happening. Yeah. I, I just think there's too much investment in blood that they would never let one family control two. Like either of the families, they'd be like, no, that's too personal. We can't like, I don't know. I I see that. I see, I could see children of marriages like that being able to bond with two ships. Yeah. But I don't see them ever trying to do that. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like live ship traders have only one child. So I think in a situation where like we said, like two people are captains or two people have ownership, I think it would just pass to the next person Mm -hmm. if it wasn't a viable, viable match. Or like we see with Paragon, his original family all died out. Uh, Udo and his son, Kerr, 
came back dead upside down and waking the ship and the the wife i think cedar was her name didn't want anything to do with it so when she died they went to the creditors and then two Ludluck cousins came out and claimed yeah. him and convinced the creditors so like if the main family dies extended family is going to step in yeah i don't think it would ever transfer to another family name yeah so definitely interesting thoughts though good thought exercise last but not least we talked last episode a little bit about the physical copies of our books and how we treat them and things like that. And there's a couple of responses that we got from Ant on Instagram and from Jonas in email about that as well, which I thought was uh, kind of fun to read about. So Ant is talking about how, um, talking specifically to Emma, really, yeah. <laughs> saying that I wanted to let you know you aren't the only one who messes up their books when reading. Now I have display versions that other people see, and then the ones I read personally that have a whole ton of words and margins and whatnot, which I thought was really fun to uh, to read about because I'm kind of the opposite. I'd like to keep uh, keep things nice and neat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why Luke reads this series on a Kindle, mm-hmm. so he doesn't have to actually mess up a real book. <laughs> yeah, I can just highlight everything and be good to go. Yeah. Um, and then we all, we have Jonas who says that they don't dog ear books. They use a small piece of paper and that they take pride in the fact that they've used the same nondescript, unimpressive and small piece of paper for the last four to five years, which is very impressive. And that I is. do applaud you on that because I cannot keep track of any bookmark I've ever used piece of paper or not. <laughs> if I save a receipt, I'm losing that in the next two days, Max. <laughs> but yeah. it's uh, Jonas also goes on to talk about how they don't, try to make their book like try to ruin their book in any way and whenever you read a book obviously you're gonna get lines on the spine if it's a paperback and just like in general and mm-hmm. um jonas makes a comment that they like that for their older sci-fi books it kind of gives them that loved feel yeah that, like definitely well loved well read but the newer series like likes to keep them pristine, pristine. yeah and definitely i i relate to this too where yeah, if it's well-worn, if it's old, like, perfect. It has some character to it, the book, you know? It's yeah. it's an older book, beautiful. But the first signs of that happening to a newer book are like, ooh, this looks so bad now, it's not pristine. <laughs> I, a really funny aside, when Luke and I first started dating, we used to go to uh, Barnes & Noble, which is a bookstore in the States. I don't think they have them here in Australia, or I don't know if they're anywhere else, but we went to Barnes & Noble on dates a lot. And whenever he would actually buy a book, which was a lot less often than me, he would search through the shelves to find the most pristine version of the book before he bought it. Whereas I would just take whatever was on the front. And if it <sighs> happened to be a little messed up, I'd be a little disappointed, but whatever. No, because there's always like dings on the spine and yeah, maybe and little micro tears. I think it just is a very good depiction of who we are as readers. <laughs> and but you know what to be fair, we do have nice copies of our books that I do not touch. I do not <laughs> I'm allowed to. I just choose not to. We have very nice copies of these books in particular. Yeah. I still want two other versions that are going to be very hard to find, but 
Yeah. And I will say I usually get my book secondhand from thrift stores. I do a lot as well. Yeah. So, uh, so does Luke. Yeah. <laughs> I won't say he doesn't, but, um, so that's usually, especially because when they're secondhand, they're usually a little bit more worn down anyway. So I usually feel a lot better about doing what I do to these books for this, <laughs> this purpose. But I will say this mad ship book that I have was secondhand and it's actually in pretty good condition. And I do feel really guilty about it because I really like the cover and I don't want to mess it up, but it's going to look pretty bad the by the cover, time we're done. The cover is the sequel to the one I described for Ship of Magic, where it's like the the dashing pirates on the front. And this one is Paragon with his arm up being attacked by serpents with Althea stabbing it on the front or something. It's very good. Very good <laughs> artwork. I love it. It's very... I don't know. I don't know if very 90s melodramatic is the era that this yeah. is from. Eighties, nineties, nineties, fantasy, maybe early two thousands. Yeah, I but I really like that genre. I feel like that's a good, a good time for fantasy book covers. Man, we're really bad book podcasters. We don't even know when this book came out. <laughs> Copyright nineteen ninety nine. There we go. The 90s. I was going to say, I don't know if the series was written in the 80s, so. No, it was not. <laughs> but no, but the, but just in general, the vibe of the art. <laughs> it's a good vibe. We like it. Thank you, everyone, to uh, who wrote in. Yeah, we always enjoy hearing your guys' opinion, whether it's about how you treat your books or what the characters are doing. Yeah. We really enjoy it, and we're really happy to be back. We have a new laptop for podcasting, and... We will be back on our regular schedule. So we're looking forward to that. And we hope you are too. And we can't wait to see you guys next week. 